to the Sync My Music podcast. This is episode three, and today I actually have my first guest, and I really wanted my first guest to be um, this gentleman that you're going to get to know very intimately here just in a bit, uh, because he and I go back uh, over a decade, actually, basically back to 2008. Um, He and I basically both got our start around the same time in the sync licensing industry. Uh, What's really unique about him though is that he's been on two sides of the equation. He he himself is a very talented uh, EDM, uh, hip hop, and and many genres uh, producer. Um, But he's also ran the administrative side of a music library for many, many years. And most recently, within the last couple of years, he's actually created his own library, his own catalog. And he's now going out and attracting great clients to uh, get pitched for his um, his music that he's actually been building up from himself and from a many from many uh, composers and producers that he's gathered on board. So what's really unique about his perspective is that he's seen so many interesting things happen over the last uh, 10, 11 years, essentially, in this business, not only from a composer perspective, which is pretty much all I've seen, I've just been on the composer side of things, but he's also been on the other side where he's seen how things have evolved for music libraries and what changes they've had to really go through as technology has been um, rapidly evolving, as the industry becomes more and more popular and more and more people become aware of this industry. And so he's obviously, I should have mentioned, he's also a Sync Academy Pro. So he has many, many tutorials on our platform and they're very, very useful. Um, he's an expert in uh, creating sort of individual sounds, sound design for synths, uh, getting that really awesome custom sound. So he has many tutorials on that topic, including how to produce mix and master um, uh, EDM tracks. And I think one of the biggest things that he provides is a sort of really smart approach, very unique. I haven't seen it taught by anybody else in terms of how to uh, set up your your um, uh, your session, your DAW session, so that when you're ready to deliver your stems, you can do it very quickly. You, you can get to alt mixes very quickly. You can uh, bounce out stems very quickly. So he has a very smart approach that he's learned from probably mixing, I mean, he can probably tell us, probably thousands of tracks in his career at this point. He was mixing, not only running the administrative side of this library, but also mixing and mastering a lot of the tracks that would get submitted to this library. So he obviously needed to save a lot of time. So he is basically the number one, I think on planet Earth, the expert on how to basically set up your session to make sure that it's very useful and very quickly accessible for TV library um, music. So without further ado, Trevor Luan, thank you so much for joining me today, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's funny listening to that intro, <clears throat> thinking about all of the time that I've spent in a DAW um, in the past compared to now, which I don't think I've like really, I've spent little time in a DAW in the last like six months to a year, you know, but <clears throat> the first like 10 years of my career, it was just session after session after session and, you know, all that learning and figuring out all that stuff that you were just talking about, the, <clears throat> you know, figuring out how to get the session to be a uh, quickly accessible and, mixing in a certain way where you can be quick but still high quality like all that all that fun stuff which in turn is now tutorials on sync academy so absolutely man and so i want to dive into a topic with you um which is really one of those things that i think some producers get nervous about and they think about the future uh, of music licensing they see streaming coming down the pipeline they see uh, artificial intelligence coming down the pipeline and so there's a lot of uh, potential threats in the future of our industry and people are wondering is it going to work out for us? Are we going to completely just collapse as an industry? Um, will there even be a need for what we do here moving forward? So I do want to dive into that topic of the future trend of the licensing industry. But I first want to go back to 10, 11 years ago, actually, because if you don't know where you came from, you really don't know where you're going. So I do want to talk to you about some of the things that you've noticed uh, over the last 10, 11 years that have really noticeably changed in the licensing industry. So if you can think back to 
2008, 2009, you know, when you were getting started, um, just kind of an overview of what was your perspective and your perception of the licensing industry at that point? Um, what did you think you were getting involved in? What, what did you think the sort of the industry was really all about? And then as you evolved over the you know, last 10 years, what sort of big changes did you see start to come in um, as you went forward? Yeah, so, so starting off, I had, <clears throat> I had like a good coach around me to kind of explain the whole world to me. So that was, that was cool. So I didn't like come in super blind. Um, and when I did, I had like, you know, explanations and stuff. But when I first started, you know, nobody was doing this. Like, no, like, they're, like everybody was trying to be on like, you know, like making beats for rappers or producing for rock bands or being the next pop star. Like there was no, like anybody had no idea that there was like a sync world, you know. And for, for TV, film, and radio stuff, like all advertising, all that stuff, they just, I don't know, nobody thought what, where did the music come from? Um, I don't know, maybe most people just thought it came from the company themselves. I don't know, but it didn't. And once you kind of figure that out, like me being somebody who just loves music in general, like you said in my intro, like I went through, I've gone through phases of what genres I love and, and produce and stuff. And this kind of world, let me do that, you know, because I mean, everybody who, you know, works in hip hop, like you get stuck in hip hop, everybody who works in pop, you kind of get stuck in pop, like in the, in the record world, but in TV, like nobody cares as long as the music's good. And it comes from you. And so <clears throat> from the producer standpoint, it was this cool, you can do all genres at all times, whenever you want. You do have to be modern. Like you can't, you're, you, but even then you don't have to be super modern because if any, a show is an 80s throwback, you can do your 80s stuff, you know, like, so <clears throat> that, that's something that was true then. And it's still very true now. Some of the older stuff, some of the, the structure of libraries and the internal stuff is a little different as a composer. Not much has changed because you just you're given you know what you need to make and then you make it and it's it can be anything at any point there's not much that has changed but on the like business side on the syncing side on the licensing side on the business to business side there's a lot that's changed before this is still true a little bit today but before it was there was just a lot of hey let's just get another album and another album and here's a hip hop album here's an R&B album here's a rock album like just constantly supplying music to these TV shows that don't have too much actually coming into them um, because most people are off in the record world. And so <clears throat> libraries were just at the race to be the highest quality catalog of music. We have some of the best catalog music. We don't have, you know, Max Martin, but we've got some of the best pop guys that aren't Max Martin, you know, like playing that kind of thing. And that was the game for a long time, <clears throat> but now everybody's doing it. And so you do have somebody who could be one of the best producers in the world doing TV and film stuff. And so, on a business standpoint, that makes it like, okay, everybody hits now that new barrier of high quality. How do you stand out then? And that's where you get into the all of the crazy interesting things that you can get into when it comes to licensing, whether it's licensing for video games or licensing for a platform that's on blockchain or licensing for advertising or lands. There's all of these things now that you have to then go, okay, quality was step one. And quantity is kind of part of the quality part, but now we have to get creative. We have to create packages for sports programs. We have to pay, create packages where it's blend between sound design and, and music for radio programs. Like you, <clears throat> you now have to get creative on the like business side of, you know, every library that I knew in the past, it was we are literally a library, just a stack of albums over and over and over again. Now, most libraries that I see that are doing well are basically like music, like a culmination of things that have to do with music and the music's relationship with broadcast and or film or, or stuff like that, where it's not just, hey, here's an album. It's, 
hey, here's a problem. You have a problem. You have editors. Editors cost a lot of money. You have this. You have that. Well, we solve some of those problems with our new project. We have a cool hip hop album, but it's not just a hip hop album. It has all these edit points. It has this. It has that, which makes your life easier. Libraries are now needing to do lots and lots more of that. <clears throat> As before, there was just a lot of, hey, here's music constantly. And so that's one of the, like, what I've, I've seen the biggest change in, over the last couple of years that has made it different from when I've started. So when I started, it was stacks of music, and now it's it's more curated in order to kind of sell, like, what you're doing to yeah, the client. Yeah, I think you're, t you're, you're, you're touching on pretty much the overarching thing that I think has been the biggest industry trend change in the last 10 years, which is saturation i think when i first got started i have a couple funny stories one is when i first got accepted by a library and they gave me some reference tracks and they said here we, we here's some tracks that will really do well in our library go ahead and, and um see if you can create something like this what i was given was literally like almost note for note ripoffs of very popular and noticeable songs out there i remember this it was like a 10 track album that i got or was a, i don't know if it was a maybe a thumb drive i was given but I remember there was one track, it was just like a corn song, like it might have been just a little bit different, like some of the chords were a little bit off, but it was like the same exact thing going on, the same kind of a structure. Um, there was like a system of a down sort of a sound, there was a Linkin Park, and it was just like, I remember back then thinking, this seems really close to copyrighted stuff that could get you in trouble. But I think back then, maybe you could, you know, say if I'm right or wrong about this, I think the licensing industry, the, the TV film licensing industry, was so unnoticed and it was such like the redheaded stepchild over there in the closet that nobody knew about or even cared about that a lot of that stuff, you got away with that actually probably further back in the past than you would ever now because it's so much more um, aware. Like, the, the, like you said, producers and artists, a, a uh, list, um, major label artists, now are aware of the income that they were probably missing out by not ju jumping into this side of the business. But that was one of the big things that I have noticed that has definitely changed over the years. I think 10 years ago, if you had just gotten started and you started writing tracks that were very similar to something that was on the radio, probably could have gotten away with it. Um, but these days, that is not at all, at all allowed. And it's really, you, you really have much more of a, uh, there's more of a scrutiny that's placed on the tracks that you put together. So you need to make sure you really are not stepping on the toes. But it, it's, it's a tricky thing because in our industry, like I always say that our industry follows the record industry in that we don't necessarily set the trends, we, we pretty much follow the trends. So if there's something really um, charting well, very popular, um, popular with the masses, whatever that might be, if it's Billboard, if it's uh, you know Spotify, if it's a YouTube video, a song, whatever that is, um, if it's, it's very popular with the masses, with the population, well, usually a TV show, a promo, a trailer, whatever it is, they don't just pull stuff out of the air because they think it's cool. They usually want to tie their product, service, show, whatever it is, to something that people already like or it's already popular or also just has the perception of cutting edge and new and fresh and, and, and basically hip with the young kids. That's really what it always comes down to. Um, and so you want to seem like you're relevant when you're putting out a new TV show. You don't want to be playing music, you know, unless it obviously has like a, you know, an old school throwback thing. But a lot of times um, this industry I've, I find has followed what's been uh, hot and trending in the uh, artist side of the industry. Have you noticed that as well? No, 100%. So most people who are trying to like put music into an advertisement or in a show or whatever, like the music supervisors or directors or whatever you want to call them, um, <clears throat> they love the music industry. They were a part of it at some point. They maybe still are a little bit a part of it or however your relationship with it is. And so a lot of times their brain is saying, oh, I want 
X, Y, and Z pop artist, right? You know, um, that new song that's out right now with the um, chick, the, I took a DNA test, turns out I'm 100, what was that? Anyway, there's a song right now, it's, <laughs> it's one of the biggest songs right now, and I can't remember her name right now, but um, <clears throat> um, she's being licensed everywhere. Like every commercial has her songs and every, you know, every, and it's because she's like the hot thing right now. And all the, um, all of the uh, music supervisors and stuff like want that or that type of feel and reaction that people get when listening to her song in whatever they're doing, especially in things like advertising. So advertising will see this popular artist and be like, well, we can't pay $20,000 or $50,000 to license this song, but we still want to tap into that. Like, culture shift or that like excitement in the culture right now so what we <clears throat> what we want is something like it and that's always been the case because music in a lot of ways drives like culture around the world depending on what's going on and the shows are, are a little bit behind and or not behind but like following and so they want they want to make sure that that is the like audio layer on top of their visuals which is like staying up with the with the current trend in in, in pop culture and another thing that I think also that I've noticed from when I first got started, and this is a trend that was basically happening probably the first three to five years that I was in the business, 2008 to 2012, 2013, was there were a ton, ton of non-exclusive libraries popping up and cropping up all over the place. Um, and one of the reasons why that business model worked well for them for a while is because they didn't have to pay at all for anything up front. They were basically coming up to producers and just saying, you can use your, you can distribute your music through us, but you could also distribute through another non-exclusive. You can keep selling your music online through iTunes. You could do whatever else you want. We don't want anything exclusive. Um, and sometimes they would even give you a portion, maybe half of your publishing writers or publishing share as well. Uh, obviously, also keeping your writer share. Um, but they didn't be, they wouldn't be offering any upfront fee. So they literally had a zero cost operation, wouldn't pay anything for it, um, and just gathered just a large collection of tracks. Um, and there were a lot of these companies really cropping up in the early years that I got involved. But as the years went on, I started noticing that a lot of these non-exclusive libraries either went out of business, just they couldn't make it work, or they would switch their model and were forced to now become more exclusive. And that was the trend that was happening for years and years and years. So maybe you can offer some insights, Trevor, as to why you saw, um, I know you saw that trend as well, why you think that was happening with these companies. Yeah, I have a lot of experience in the um, exclusive world and so i know why exclusive state exclusive um <clears throat> and why exclusive like one out in the long run because like most non-exclusive libraries that i know of either don't exist or are having a lot of trouble today and <clears throat> all the exclusive ones are still you know going strong and a lot of the main reasons are um <clears throat> client-based right so clients especially like when it comes to big tv shows and networks and stuff like that they want um legal how do i explain it they want like legal security right and if you've got a bunch of non-exclusive things coming from all these different people there's like copyright issues there's <clears throat> who do i pay issues there's so many different issues that you know can cause them problems down the line too because they may be doing a non-exclusive license that they think is one way but because somebody has made multiple deals with different non-exclusives now like they could have a lawyer on their back because they've made this person this composer whatever has made deals that are different amongst different people. And so it all overlaps and causes people to be like, no, you need to pay me. No, no, you need to pay me. And then you've got a big mess. And 
So a lot of licensing people are like tired of dealing with that kind of stuff because it comes to them at the end of the day because they're the ones with the money, right? They're the ones that have to pay people. So there, that was one issue. Second issue is the retitling issue, which is the, basically an alternate version of the same issue that I just said, which is if you have the same track with multiple titles and <clears throat> one person, you know, licenses it and another person licenses it at a different price, then in like in, in all these different terms are different all over the place everybody starts to realize like, okay, this track is everywhere. And I'm like, I'm paying more. Are they paying less? Are there? And it's, it's just too much of a, like, I don't know what I'm getting when I'm paying for something. And so people stop doing that because exclusive, it's very, very straightforward between like business to business wise. It's, we pick the price, we pick the yes or no, we make all decisions at which we meaning the publisher. So the library itself, we make all of the decisions that have to do with this track. All paperwork has to do with us. And there's no other parties involved. Um, so it's just us, library, and client, you know, TV show or network or whatever. And that creates a very, very comfortable relationship between the business and, or the two businesses or the music and the, you know, whatever. So <clears throat> that's like the main reason is it's just a, it's a clean and in not a non-problematic situation to be in when it's, it's music is exclusive because the non-exclusive stuff just goes all over the place and it causes problems. And so clients more and more, especially when you get into global stuff, when you get into global rights and um, music being distributed to other countries, a lot of other countries, they, they want to have exclusive rights to the music that they are grabbing. So if a library has a distribution deal with, with the UK, the UK wants to know that they have exclusive rights to use that UK company wants to use that music, exactly that music and only that music under one term and not, or one set of terms and not have all this other stuff to deal with um, as well. So it, it all comes down to what clients don't want to deal with, which is non-exclusive nowadays, at least major clients like, you know, advertising and stuff like they're still, from my understanding, uh, non-exclusive does pretty well in the like, medium-sized YouTuber world and the random website video world in which, you know, you get the little random licenses there because it's just somebody trying to get a quick license to some cool music and they don't have the whole legal system behind them anyway. So it's not much of a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one more thing I could add to that is also the um, ability to come to a client if you're a music library to say, you can only get this music with us. And I think that was also something that a lot of non-exclusive libraries were running up against because this non-exclusive library and the next non-exclusive library would have a lot of the same tracks because one producer probably gave their same catalog to both. And so a lot of their clients would like notice that and go like, well, I can go with any non-exclusive library and get pretty much a lot of the same stuff. It seems like this is kind of bottom of the barrel, not really high quality stuff, and definitely not something special or unique that I can get only by working with one of you, one of you non-exclusive libraries. So they also realized non-exclusive libraries, the ones that survived, realized they had to make that adjustment um, if they wanted to stay relevant, like you said, for sub-publishers and going in global and, and getting uh, placements in multiple markets. They realized that's also the big selling point they have is to say, this is one of a kind, unique, you can't get this stuff anywhere else. If you really like what we got, um, you got to go with us, basically. And so that was one one uh, final piece of that. Um, another thing that I've noticed is back when I got started, 2008, 2009, um, I think that you could have easily got uh, accepted by a library, as long as you had high quality tracks, but I think you could have gotten accepted and gotten under contract with maybe a little demo, you know, two tracks, three tracks, maybe four. And I think you could have gotten into the door to say, um, I'd like to work with you. Here's the start of an album or here's the start of what I can provide for you guys. 
get me under contract and let's let's work to finish up this album and then I'd like to continue on with you guys. Um, I'm not saying it's impossible now to do it still, but I do think now because there are many more, there's much more attention, there's many more producers getting into this space that that usually I would say is a sort of like D minus approach to get into a library. Like you could get through, it's possible if you have really great stuff and they love what you're doing. But I, I do believe that the new approach that I've been encouraging all of my subscribers and followers to do is to get a full album ready to go. Um, and for the main reason is that when you are put yourself in the shoes of a music library, and I want Trevor to definitely talk about this, uh, imagine that you were getting submitted by two different producers. One has four tracks and they're like, get me under contract and then I'll week by week build that up to 10 or 12 tracks. And basically you can hold my hand as I do all that. Uh, or B, the second uh, producer comes to the table with a full album, 10 tracks, 12 tracks. It's following a singular genre, maybe a singular mood. It's themed in a particular way, and it's also been pitched to you, the library, in a way that's going to be useful for the projects that you're going to be shopping and, and using uh, very, very immediately, right? And so I want you to talk about that a little bit in terms of now that you are your own music library owner and you do accept um, submissions from, um, from producers, what have you seen in terms of the changes from, you know, 10 years ago to now? Yeah, it, it's like, so how I explained the relationship with um, businesses, right, like the client and the library, it's very similar to the, um, the, music, the producer in the library. So, you know, I was saying like, oh, you could just make albums over and over and over again. It wasn't a big deal. And now you have to get creative and make different types of packages and do all this, you know, stuff. It's similar with the relationship with the composer and the and the library as well. The, co the composer used to just come in and be like, "Hey, I'm this type of composer. Here's my types of tracks I can make. Can I be on the team? And then, or can I, you know, constantly just give you tracks and then you figure it out? Because a lot of times, in the past, from libraries that I've known, like they'll just collect tracks and then build an album like randomly out of those tracks because they were getting tracks for you know, not too expensive. Nobody really understood the world anyway, this world anyway. So they were just kind of collecting stuff and they would build an album. <clears throat> um, but now there's way more like that thought that has to be brought in beforehand because libraries are now spent spending so much time being that creative, you know, getting, getting into the client's ear because everybody's trying to get into the client's ear, getting relationships with, with all these different types of clients. And so they don't have the time or it doesn't make sense for them to spend the time, too much time, like crafting the music part, holding like what you said, like holding your hand, right? Holding the producer's hand. Instead, if a producer and lots of them do this, and this has kind of become the A plus, you know, strategy, which is you just come in and go, hey, here's a done product or here's like, it's 90% done, you know, or what, like, that's really the, the, at that point, then it makes a library's job super simple because then they can stay focused on the client part instead of the building albums part, which is still important, but is is less and less a return on investment as you would, you know, as you would say. It's like you spend more time working with clients and figuring out what they want and less time like holding a, like 15 producers' hand all all week, you know, trying to get them to finish stuff. Um, <clears throat> that's one of the biggest changes because you know, I think the reason why that wasn't happening before is because of the competition part, because there weren't like you know, hundreds of producers constantly trying to get into TV and film all day. Now it was back then it was like one dude learned about it a little bit and hit you up and it was like, Oh, you know about it? Cool. I don't have to like explain it to you or I have to explain like 80% of it to you and you got the 20% already. You know, that was how it was before, but now everybody knows. 
partially thanks to your YouTube channel. <laughs> Everybody kind of gets it now and it's just a bombardment of music. So you have to stand out just like it's, there's so many library companies out there. They got to stand out too. So it's, you know, both sides of that coin have to just get better. You know? Yeah. And um, dovetailing off of that, I do want to talk about the saturation or the perceived um, oversaturation of this market at this point. Um, I still actually, even though there are a lot more producers, there's a lot more eyeballs, a lot more attention going into this side of the business. I don't believe that we've hit a, a point where it's not worth it to get involved anymore. Um, even though there are many more people trying to get involved, many more producers now being aware of it. Yes, I'm definitely one of the, uh, the, the causes of that. Sorry, guys. But um, I don't think that, I, I want to make sure that there's a, a separation for you guys listening, that it's a difference between having a higher bar, the, the bar set a little bit higher to be uh, into this business, to get accepted to buy a library, to be really competitive, is not the same thing as it's too saturated, it's not worth getting involved with. Those are two separate things. Um, I think that even though there are a lot of people trying to get accepted by libraries and a lot of producers now um, learning about this game, learning how to succeed, I still don't think that there are too many producers with high quality tracks out there. I don't think that we're even close to that uh, level of oversaturation where it's like, hey, don't even bother, there's really no space for you. Um, and the main reason for that is, believe it or not, human laziness and most people's inability to consistently stick with a, a goal for longer than six months. It really comes down to that. Um, most producers, most musicians are not able to do this. It's a very, uh, it's very simple, but it's very difficult. Um, it's not easy to basically make a choice, make a commitment. Uh, and obviously, I think even step one, creating a full album. I think if you just get through that first hurdle, I was actually just having an email with one of my students the other day about that, um, who had the same concern, like, is it even worth it? Should I get involved? Um, and I, I always just try to give them that encouragement to say, yes, it's not it's not easy to get a full album completed, especially when you're kind of flying blind, you're running on faith, essentially hoping that that entire album gets accepted by a library. Um, and sometimes, you know, being motivated to work on an album for a month or two without having a, a for sure definite, it's not like when you have a day job and your boss tells you, if you don't get this done, you're fired. Okay, you've got your incentive right there. You gotta get it done. But this is a situation where you're now your own boss, you're your own manager, you're scheduling out your own time. And just that ability to be able to decide the goal, set the goal, schedule out the goal week by week, and most importantly, execute on the goal and actually get that done, and then rinse and repeat that process over and over and over again, that is the core fundamental um, skill set that will make you, um, um, how should I say, a superhero, essentially. Like, you will not be um, at all vulnerable to an over quote unquote oversaturated market because most people i'm telling you guys it's like 95 97 maybe 98 percent of people do not have that ability we live in a world now where we want things instantly we get distracted social media streaming video games all of these have been specifically designed to manipulate your attention keep you distracted keep you sucked into wormholes keep you away from your goals keep you away from doing something that might be difficult they're about instant gratification so a big chunk of succeeding is learning how to turn off distractions like turning off things that are getting in the way of you making these goals and sticking to them week by week so i want to make sure you guys are aware of that even though we are talking about yes there's a lot more people getting involved a lot more more people submitting um, you're not even close to the point where 
it's not worth getting involved. It's not worth submitting to a library. You can still find an incredible niche to serve. You can still be an incredible partner with a music library um, and you can still absolutely just kill it in this business. And I'm not saying this out of theory. I actually have successful producers. In fact, I will be releasing, um, well, by the time this podcast comes out, I probably already released it. One of my um, Sync Academy students that just got a placement for the um, Zombieland 2 trailer that just came out. So biggest sync fee he's ever gotten in his life. He was involved in sync licensing long before he was in Sync Academy, but he was just not getting the results that he wanted. And with the training that he got in Sync Academy, he's now able to directly um, uh, serve the needs of the library. And he's only partnered with one library, actually. And I kind of gave him some advice. I said, you, may, you might want to start partnering with a second one as well, just to kind of build up your relationship network a bit. But even with just one library, He's now um, basically at the peak of his career, and he's been in the industry for a long, long time, for many, many years. So these are the kind of stories that I get, and I have firsthand knowledge, and I'm, I'm sharing them with you guys so that you guys also see for yourself that it's not oversaturated. The best days are not behind you. Um, it's not too late to get involved, but you do have to have that persistence and, and sticking with it. So anyways, I didn't mean to hog the mic too much, Trevor. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, it is your podcast. I'm just, I guess so. I'm along for the ride. That, no, it was really good, though. But um, <clears throat> that that whole that tangent you just went on is is so important. Like, and, and coming from the receiving end of that, like as a business, who you know, I'm my email, my inbox is not flooded with music. I know there's tons of it out there. I know there's tons of people who are making it. I know there's tons of people who want to do things, but. They're not doing it. There's, there is definitely an oversaturation of lazy people. <laughs> if, if the, you know, it's the best way to put it. And, and, <clears throat> and to, to just step up above the lazy people thing, it, it just get one more step above and just a few more steps. All it is, is work. So, so like the, I've said this thing before is um, it's not a, th this isn't a high risk, high reward scenario. This is a high work, high reward scenario, which means that all you have to do is work more than like a bunch of people and then it stops being risky anymore because you're you're you've now you're now out of the crowd because the crowd is mostly a bunch of people who are like, well, I have some music, you know, I kind of do it. I'm like mediocre, a little bit better than mediocre, but I don't put as much time in as I would like to or as I say I do. A lot of people are like, I'm working on it all the time and they're not. And then you just beat out that group and you're now in the two percent. And then once you hit that part, there's no such thing as saturation anymore. I don't, I don't like the term oversaturation because it really means that you are in with the 98% that aren't doing anything or aren't that good or aren't that, they don't have a good worth ethic or whatever their thing is. That's the saturated part. But once you've stepped out of that, it's highly unsaturated. I mean, like what, what the, the uh, album thing that I was talking about earlier in the last year, year and a half, I've maybe gotten an email with a full album maybe three times. And I've, out of all of the emails that I've received, like pitches or people sending me like music, oh, hey, this, check me out or whatever. It's almost always like, I can do this for you, or I might be able to do this for you, or can I, you tell me what you need and then I'll spend a bunch of time, you know, probably doing this, but probably not. I've, in my experience, that's something that never works out. And the, all of those people are the saturated part. But then once, you know, that, and every, I think all but maybe one of those albums that I've, I think I've received a full album or like an 80% done album, maybe four times in the last two years, I think I've accepted all except one. And <clears throat> it's not, it's, part of it is, you know, they're higher quality. Obviously they took a lot of time to make a full album. They're just going to be better in general than some dude making one album, but also like just the amount of problems that I don't have to deal with because it's already done is is alone enough to, for me to be like i should consider this because i there's a lot of work i don't have to do now 
you know, they, and so that right there, that's not oversaturated. Like I said, in the last two years, I got maybe four of them. That's not oversaturation at all. And that, but in, 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 in a lot of people's minds, and I, and I know a lot of people, and I was this way at some point, you know, in my, in, at different points in my career, where I'm just like, man, there's so many people. And really what it is, is it is you are in that group at that moment, and it does look like there's a bunch of people around you because you're stuck in that big crowd. And you're like, man, this is oversaturation, not realizing that there's a door that you have to go through next, and now you're in this other room and there's nobody in there. And you're like, okay, this industry isn't saturated anymore. That was just some crappy room I was in. <laughs> so I, th I think that once that kind of thing gets out of your brain, and this is true in so many industries, that's why people on like YouTube and, and books and stuff write about this, which is, like you get your mindset out of the oversaturation part and get into just like hard work and like succeeding like that once you're you're past that part you're you're good you're, there's not a saturation anymore because most people can't get out of that mental block of this is just too much and <clears throat> once you can once you get out of that first room then it's just not i wouldn't say smooth sailing but you get it at that point and it's just hard work and good payoff at that point yeah, I love that so much. I'm going to cut that out and make that a YouTube video because that needs to be said. I, I've never heard it said that way. Actually, that was brilliant. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. You're, when you are in that 98%, 97% kind of swimming around, it does look like, man, look at all these people out here. They're all trying to do it. But as Trevor said, there's only a few that took a little bit extra effort and submitted a full album. And he, those are the ones that he remembers throughout you know, the past year of his, uh, of his business. Um, and the second thing uh, with that is that's really just sort of that classic um, distinction between talk versus action because how much does it cost you to write an email saying to a library, I'm a hardworking producer, I'm gonna be there for you all the time, I'm gonna crank out music all the time, I'm ready, I'm hungry, I'm about to blow up, you know, that's my favorite one. <laughs> um, I'm gonna do some awesome things for you. That costs nothing, that costs about three minutes of time, uh, uh, some calories you burn from moving your fingers on your keyboard. There is nothing to that. That is such an easy nothing email to compose. So what does that say versus the producer that has an album with a download link or a streaming link to their website that they've created and it's a really nice professional looking website and there's 12 tracks ready to go and in your email you're like, hey, and I can get you alt mixes, stems, metadata, whatever you need, however you need it, I'm ready to go. One of those has done the work, right? One of those people, they're not just talking, they're not just excited about the business this week and then next week they're excited about you know, a SoundCloud remix competition, but they're actually showing you and telling you that they've devoted two months of their life, maybe a month or two months, which is not like an eternity, guys. This is not like forever, but that's a significant chunk of time and that's a significant chunk of work that they've devoted. So Trevor's seeing the action there. So you don't pay attention to what people say, look at what they do. And that kind of approach is you as a composer telling the, the library, this is what I do. It's not just what I say, it's not what I'm promising, it's not um, just pie in the sky, I'm all excited about it, but this is real work that's ready for you that you guys can take into your catalog immediately if you'd like to. So really powerful stuff, man, that was really great. So let's switch into the current and moving forward into the future. Obviously the big uh, elephant in the room is streaming. Um, if you guys are not aware, uh, streaming obviously came online a few years back with Netflix. Netflix being the first one that kind of uh, broke open the entire um, industry. And now you guys are seeing that, you know, uh, Apple has theirs coming out. Disney has theirs. You've got uh, Hulu, Amazon, you name it. I mean, we're, we're into the dozen. It's almost getting to the point now where if you want to actually be subscribed to all these, it's going to be more expensive than your original cable bill. 
So I'm kind of curious if that's going to get people and maybe the cable companies to think about in um, innovating and trying to attract some of those customers back to say, are you tired of these eight different streaming sites? We'll come back here and we've got all this great content for you, maybe even a more on-demand format. Who knows? We'll see what that happens. But um, streaming royalties, they have definitely not been impressive. Um, I've seen in my royalty checks that you see my TV placements and, um, and all those that go on and those are great and I've seen those grow. Streaming has obviously been a new form of um, uh, income that I've been earning, so I'm grateful to earn new forms of income, but we're talking about, you know, like a 90% reduction in royalties that I received from them, and I've heard it explained in many ways. One of the biggest ways or the most um, clear ways that I've heard explain why it's so low is because just the numbers that they can track in terms of how many times that episode aired are just not on par with what they're seeing in regular cable land. Cable is still the big dominator, still has all the eyeballs, still has the millions of people doing it. While streaming is growing, it's still sort of in its infancy stage. So they, they, the explanation that I've heard in terms of from the PROs is that, well, just the numbers aren't there yet. When the numbers grow and more and more people are there, that those rates will uh, still rise. In fact, I don't know if you've heard that explanation or not, Trevor. Yeah, it, I, I think that that's that might be true somewhat, but I don't I don't think that's the main reason why. Um, I do think that at first it was for sure, you know, especially like Hulu, like Netflix had the eyeballs like crazy, right? Everybody's been on Netflix forever, but things like Hulu and now these new services, like I don't, they don't know what, how they're going to do. So it's hard to like, cause the way royalties work, you know, it's a, it's a yearly big giant sum, at least for BMI, ASCAP and all the PROs, it's like a yearly giant sum based on projections from last year of how many people watched and all that fun stuff, giant math problem. Um, it's hard for streaming companies to do that right now because you know, they could be gone today and, and <laughs> sorry, here today, gone tomorrow kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> while it doesn't seem like that, I think we're coming into the new stride of like the top 10 or whatever streaming companies and they're here to stay. They're pumping a ton of money in there. But uh, before, yeah, it, you know, Netflix, I mean, for a long time, like Netflix could have been just gone, you know, like it could have been like, oh, everybody just kind of stopped watching Netflix um, for a while in its beginning. So, <clears throat> With that being said, I understand that a little bit, but we're now in a place where digital streaming services have a better chance at being able to accurately explain play counts, how long people watch. You can't do that with cable, really. Like, unless the box is tracking it, it's just a it's service going out. They, they, the way that they used to calculate it, from my understanding, is they would do surveys and be like, how many of you in this area are watching these shows? And on a, So it's not really accurate but it's it's somewhat accurate whereas this is literally you just get the numbers exactly because it's all data driven right um <clears throat> it's all digital so in the future we're kind of we're going to get approached with two possible solutions and i don't see one of them working or happening because i don't think none of the streaming companies want to set up this type of infrastructure which is really clear straightforward royalty um, um system within you know disney plus and, and you know all the espn plus or you know all these different things I don't, they have no real, um, unless the music part really pressures them to do it. And basically everybody who does music says you either create a system for us to, you know, gain royalties or we don't give you any music, which I highly doubt that's going to happen. Or there's just upfront fees will go up more and it'll be mostly upfront licensing for most things, you know, which I know Netflix is doing this, for example, most current Netflix shows that they are producing themselves, they don't pay any type of royalty stuff. They just pay an upfront thing. Now, there, I don't know the specifics on the royalty part because I know that previous shows, like Friends, for example, is on Netflix. 
they legally have to pay some sort of royalties because those were under like old rules, old contracts of royalty systems and stuff. So they have to figure it out somehow there. But a lot of new current content, they don't want to deal with any of that. They want to pay once. That song is now in their show forever and or their Netflix movie forever. And <clears throat> I, I see it probably staying that way where the upfront fees are a little bit more than normal. The sync fees are a little bit more than normal, but there is no back end. And so with that being said, as like a composer or producer, understanding that that's the case in those situations. Now, like advertising and stuff could be different, you know, and maybe one platform does like champion the the, the uh, royalty section or whatever, the royalty option. But really it's all about seeing where this is all shifting and following the shift because you're not gonna be able to like scream your way to what you want. You know, like everybody was mad at Napster but it still happened and there was nothing you could do about it. And instead of screaming about it and trying to sue people and trying to get all this stuff going on and make everybody act the way you want them to act, you just, you follow along, you figure out how to like do the best in what's going to happen because the, this is how the consumers and, and everybody wants to receive stuff. They want to receive stuff through streaming and they want to receive stuff in an easy, accessible way. And so the people who make it make the rules in that sense. So if these companies are all, set up to just be upfront licensing and there's hardly any if none royalties then you as a composer need to like partner with libraries or companies that will take care of you in those situations and if those clients if some library is really focused on getting netflix placements and you're only receiving royalties that might be a bad idea for you but if some partner or library is work, working on you know advertising and advertising makes a bunch of royalties and you're going to be getting those royalties cool like then that makes sense for you but really paying attention to what what <clears throat> libraries are doing for you and your music is what's going to be really important in the near future, because it, it before it was here take it all and I'll collect royalties and then just hang out. Now you really have to pay attention to the types of clients and how they get you money because now it could be royalties, it could be upfront, it could be in the form of some crypto thing. You know, like your music gets played in this crypto platform or this blockchain platform that pumps out crypto to you. Like there could be all these different ways that you are now, you have to pay attention and make sure that you you know how that works so that you can get paid because you may be expecting a ton of royalties from all these amazing Netflix payments that your placements that you got, but your deal with them has nothing to do with upfront. It only has to do with royalties and you're at zero. So there's this market is going to be all over the place. As before, there was really just sync fees and royalties. And composers and producers really just stayed in this royalty world. And the libraries and companies stayed in the sync world. And now it's all over the place. And you really have to pay attention because we don't know what ends up, what's going to end up happening. And all of it will probably end up happening. I couldn't agree more. And I think the one thing we can both agree on is that the future of the sync licensing business will contain one thing above all else, and that is change and evolution and new technologies and new mediums to get our music licensed. So our job as producers is to not make the same mistakes that the major labels made in the late 90s, early 2000s, where they kicked and screamed, complained about it, filed lawsuits, right, and, and did fear campaigns to try to change technology. Look at how that worked out for them. They lost their power. They lost their wealth. They lost a lot of their influence in the industry. Um, and it's because early on, they didn't notice this massive tidal wave coming in to change the entire landscape. And so they tried to fight it, essentially, rather than 
getting a surfboard and riding that wave and figuring out a way to evolve and change their business model. Well, who did that? Well, Apple was actually the company, believe it or not, of all companies that came through and helped them solve that problem by launching iTunes, okay? So we wanna be more like Apple. Well, let's say more like the Apple of the early 2000s. I'm not a big fan of what they've been doing since Steve Jobs is gone. But let's say we wanna be the Apple of you know early 2000s when they saw the opportunity, they saw a changing landscape and they realized we can provide a legitimate legal place for customers to come and purchase, pay for music. And so they came in and absolutely saved the butts of these major label, um, uh, these major labels. So we wanna be more like the Apple to basically be smart, keep our eyes open, our ears open, look for these opportunities, look for things that are happening and strike, which means you might need to change your, your strategy, might need to change your thinking about how the industry can be profitable for you, whatever Whatever that might be, I will definitely do all that I can here with this podcast and with my YouTube videos to make sure you guys are aware of the most uh, cutting edge technologies and the cutting edge ways that music producers can make money and can actually secure placements in the new digital era and all the new technologies that are going to arise. Okay, so you guys will obviously be first to know when I know about anything that's definitely happening. And so. I do appreciate your your, uh, your time today, Trevor. Thank you so much. As you guys can tell, this is why I had him on as my first guest with the podcast. Loads of knowledge, loads of wisdom, loads of great insight that you just can't get anywhere else. So thank you so much, Trevor, for your time today. And we'll definitely have you on for future episodes. We have so many topics that we could spend hours and hours going into. And I definitely plan on doing that with this podcast. With that being said, guys, thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate your time. Please do give me feedback on this podcast so far. How do you like it? What can be improved? What do you want to hear? What do you want to uh, know more about? What kind of topics do you want me uh, to cover in this uh, medium? Obviously, I'm figuring it out as we go along. It's a new medium for me. So please do email me, jesse at syncmymusic.com and let me know what you think. I want to make sure that everything that I produce for you guys can at least be relevant, motivating, educational, inspirational, one of those four or a combo of all four. Every time you listen to a podcast, every time you watch a video, I want you to be even more energized, uh, motivated, or prepared to really succeed in the sync licensing business, okay? If I'm not doing that with the content I put out, I'm wasting my time, I'm wasting your time. So the more you guys can communicate with me directly, the better this podcast and all my content will be for you. So with that being said, thank you again, and we'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Sync My Music podcast. If you enjoyed the show and want me to do more episodes, all that I ask is that you leave me a review on whatever platform or app that you're listening to. It just takes a few seconds. I'll never charge for this podcast and I want to keep it 100% ad-free. And your review right now will help me do just that. Thank you so much. Thank you.